Hey, Bard listeners. If you live in New York City and love the public library, we need your help. This past fall, our public libraries sustained deep mid-year cuts that forced an end of seven-day service and reduction of our materials and programs. We're now facing more budget cuts for the coming fiscal year. Libraries across the city stand to lose $58.3 million in funding. If these cuts are not reversed, we may have to reduce materials and programming yet again, including further reductions to our days of service. As many as half of all New York City libraries would be open only five days a week. The good news is you can help. Send a letter to city leaders telling them that you support the library. It's easy. It only takes 30 seconds and you can do it now. If you live in Brooklyn, go to BKLYNlibrary.org slash standup, all one word, to fill out the form. If you live in any of the other boroughs, you can send a letter on behalf of Queens Public Library or New York Public Library. Learn how at investinlibraries.org. Thank you so much for your support. With 130 million books in the world, deciding which one to read can be hard. Enter Bookable, the podcast where established authors and emerging talent lead the way through an immersive sound experience of their book. Join host Amanda Stern to explore award-winning novels, secret masterpieces, and even a few forgotten gems. Subscribe and hear why Bookable is getting rave reviews. Bookable from Loud Tree Media, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Adjua. Hey, Krista. So we have set ourselves this huge task with Borrowed as the podcast for Brooklyn Public Library, which is a library system with 60 branches across the borough. We are often trying to tell Brooklyn's story to our listeners. Which is impossible, right? I mean, Brooklyn is a borough of nearly 3 million people. People speaking hundreds of different languages from countries around the world. Each neighborhood is basically like a different city. I mean, how could we possibly presume to tell Brooklyn's story, right? And that's not even a good thing to attempt. I'm thinking about Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's famous TED Talk, The Danger of a Single Story, in which she warns against assuming that a country or a community or a group of people have only one narrative to tell about themselves. During that talk, Adichie said, Stories matter. Many stories matter. When we reject the single story, when we realize that there is never a single story about any place, we regain a kind of paradise. So we're going to bring that philosophy to Borrowed today. You're about to hear five different stories about Brooklyn. These stories were all produced during the library's first ever audio storytelling workshop series titled Hear Me Out. It was a really incredible program. As you'll hear, each participant came in with a story to tell. And over the course of 12 weeks, they learned the basics of recording, editing, and mixing their own audio stories. So as ever on Borrowed, we bring you stories that started at the library. I'm Adwa Aduse. And I'm Krissa Corbett-Kavoris. To really make this make sense, I gotta set the scene. Let's think about Bed-Stuy for a moment. Let's get sensory. Wipe away the gentrification coffee shops for a second. 
maybe, with your eyes closed, you might conjure up a snippet of Biggie rapping live from Bedford Stuyvesant, the livest one. You might see scenes from Do the Right Thing. If you're a little closer to the experience, you might even envision block parties, kids dashing through open fire hydrants, giddy. And maybe you imagine dice games in front of the corner store and think of the infamy and violence and gangbanging. But no matter what, Bed-Stuy evokes an energy. It's undeniably someplace loud, vibrant, and alive. And I gotta come clean, like, while I know those elements, I'm not of them. I'm not really from that Bed-Stuy of lore. I'm from a historic subsection of Bed-Stuy called Stuyvesant Heights, an enclave known for its old Victorian homes, grand churches, and quiet, shady streets. It's like a bubble, encompassing the blocks within Tompkins Ave, Halsey Street, Malcolm X Boulevard, and Fulton. For the most part, I always felt like my hood was like a tree-lined New Jersey suburb, tucked away in the middle of Bed-Stuy. Around my way, everyone knew your name and your business, and they would read you down if your flower boxes were looking raggedy. We had to come correct. That's how we won the Greenest Block in Brooklyn title back to back to back. I will say, though, that a truly magical part of growing up in that enclave was that Black folks owned everything, our homes and our businesses. And I've only truly come to appreciate this as I've gotten older, in the midst of the sty's rapid gentrification. So I say all that to say that my childhood wasn't exactly a gritty scene characterized by a Jay-Z song. Young Hova, you heard? And low-key, if we're being honest, some say his wasn't either. No shade, Hove. That's just what the streets be saying sometimes. But Jay and I can both wax poetic about hugging the block. I can spit every one of his lyrics with conviction, verse for verse, even though there was very little fire hydrant frolicking, quarter water drinking, double dutch jumping, or general stoop kid sh** in my story. Man, my dad wouldn't even let me chase after the ice cream truck for fear that Mr. Softy was slinging more than soft serve. And I will let you take that for however you take that. But sometimes I'm like, where was my childhood? <laughs> I always thought being from Bed-Stuy meant a few quintessential things. First off, you had to be fly. Bed-Stuy, the star. That's my friend Dave. He grew up around the corner from me on Macon while I grew up on McDonough Street. Star right, star fly, red star. For me, we do it better, we get brispy. And when I tell you this kid was always fly, like, it was not a game. His whole family was fly. Like, he got it from his father. They were not playing. We just get fly in every other hood in Brooklyn. Just know that I'm keeping it a buck, all the way a buck. Dave used to wear braids, and they were never fuzzy, always fresh. He had the Iversons. They were intertwining, overlapping. The parts were mad sharp. Always had on some nice press true religions, sagging just right, like, woo! That was Glenn Pogue, a writer and educator. Her writing has been featured in Vogue, Guernica, Essence, National Geographic Traveler, and more. 
we just played an excerpt from her audio story and you can hear the full version on our website. We'll give you the link at the end of this episode. And Glenn is intending to make this story part of a serialized podcast called Bedsty Brat, which was also her AOL instant messenger name back in the T-Mobile sidekick days. So watch your podcast feeds for that. Our next story is from Just a Neighborhood Over. Mingi Dworkin is a resident of Crown Heights, Brooklyn, but her story starts halfway across the world. Brooklyn was a central part of my life long before I was ever there. I was born and raised far across the world, in South Africa. But I was also a Hasidic Jew, part of the Chabad Lubavitch sect. Crown Heights, Brooklyn was home to the headquarters and to the leader of the movement, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, known to many simply as the Rebbe. The Rebbe was known as one of the most influential Jewish leaders of the 20th century for his work on behalf of Jewry as a whole. Hasidic Jews in general are known for being insular in the name of preserving their religious culture, having come to America from areas throughout Europe out of force and not out of choice, they made it their mission to hold on to their traditions by keeping within their tight-knit communities. But the Lubavitcher Rebbe took a different approach. In a post-Holocaust world, his mission was to reach every corner of the globe with love and concern, to promote acts of goodness and kindness and to utilize the world around us to further that goal. I was part of that international network the Rebbe had created. For me, he was a mentor and teacher, and much of our lives were centered around the goings-on in Crown Heights. I remember being woken up late at night as a child to go watch satellite hookups of the Rebbe delivering live public addresses. Brooklyn seemed so far away, and yet, It seemed part of my identity already then. Lubavitcher Jews around the world today began seven days of mourning for their beloved leader, Rabbi Schneerson. Rabbi Schneerson was a great leader of the Lubavitcher people. He was a great religious leader of the Jewish people. He was also a great religious leader of all people all throughout the world. On June 12, 1994, the Rebbe passed away, leaving a community of thousands of his followers reeling. The tremors of this earthquake were felt worldwide, within Chabad and far beyond. For me, his loss was an occurrence I was brought up to believe was an impossibility. The Rebbe was the seventh in a direct succession of leaders, and it was known there was no one in place to take over his seat. Even though he was 92, there was never talk of us losing him. I'm not sure exactly what the plan was. For many, there was an expectation that the Rebbe would usher us into the Messianic era. And maybe there was some denial on the part of the grown-ups, which obviously doesn't translate well for a child of my age, so full of hope, not knowing yet about disappointment and unfulfilled promises. I watched as my learned teachers, esteemed rabbis, and world leaders stood speechless, seeming so unsure of what the future held. It's a funny thing to try put into perspective now as an adult. I never met the Rebbe in person, this spiritual giant who had such a great impact on my life at such a young age. 
I met my friend Shua years later when I moved to Brooklyn as an adult. At the time of the Rebbe's passing, he was 13 years old and living in Crown Heights. His life then revolved around 770 Eastern Parkway, the headquarters, where he went daily to pray, to see the Rebbe, to listen to him talk, or to receive a blessing from him and a dollar for charity. All that I ever knew was him, you know, kind of leading the community and leading this movement. And the thought of him not being around was, was really scary. Something huge was going to change. And I didn't know any other version of, of everyday life. I spoke to him about how it was being right in the heart of the action on the day of the Rebbe's passing. It was cathartic in the same way you might sit with an older sibling and listen to stories of a grandparent that they grew up with, but you never got to meet. As my parents shook me awake that early Sunday morning, June 13th, in South Africa, to break the bad news to me, it was still nighttime in New York. It was Saturday night. I just, uh, I don't know, I woke up. There was a lot of people talking on the phone. There was actually an alarm going. (laughs) When he used to give public addresses, there was a siren that would sound so that people would know before the time the cell phones would know to make their way to the synagogue so that siren was sounding as soon as i heard i was sure that's what had happened i was sure that's what had happened which sounds silly for me to say i was sure people were very much talking about it like something that would never happen there was going to be this miracle then i remember my dad was talking on the phone to his sister who lived uh where was she living then texas maybe and uh i just remember him saying it's over <laughs> It was very dramatic. I just remember him saying it's over. That was Mingi Dworkin sharing with us a small peek into the world she is passionate about, navigating Hasidic life in modern society. So listen to the rest of her beautiful story over on our website. For our next story, we hear from Shivram Viswanathan, who actually produced his story from Seoul, Korea, where he's on a fellowship studying economics, political science, and spiritual music. Shiv reminded us that physical place isn't the only way to form an identity. Specifically, Shiv described Indian Americans who come together around traditional South Indian music. If my childhood had a soundtrack, it would probably be Carnatic music, a classical, often spiritual musical style from Southern India. It usually involves a melodic instrument or somebody's voice, accompanied by some percussion, and the drone of the stringed thanpura. Now these elements played together sound something a little like this. These sounds remind me of the joys and difficulties I had pulling together a cultural and spiritual identity of my own while living in Ohio with a small diasporic community. Carnatic music is a cultural centerpiece for South Indian descendants, but for many people it can also be a case study in tensions between orthodoxy and innovation, between tradition and modernity, and between themselves and others. I spoke with three second-generation Indian-American Carnatic musicians, Rupa Mahadevan and Shiv Subramanyam, who are vocalists based out of New York, and Shruti Sarathi, a violinist living in the Bay Area. 
And they grew up navigating frictions of an Indian American identity using music, like I did. And also like me, the first setting for these frictions was in the American education system. My upbringing was super diverse. I mean, tons of Desis, yes, but also like, you know, Asians, um, you know, Latin, uh, Mexican communities, um, African-American communities. Um. This is Rupa talking about going to school in the Bay Area. But I think I learned to be savvy about like, like I wouldn't go to an on-Indian friend school and be like, hey, can I sing you this song I'm learning? <laughs> and maybe I should have been. Maybe I should have been more like right. yeah, <laughs> yeah. confident about that. A growing Indian immigrant population gave Rupa the outlet for her Carnatic music and the ability to explore her connection to that music a little more creatively. I found myself falling in love with, and much later, R&B and hip-hop and people who were same, who were embodying, right, like rhythm and melody and incorporating it into their lives. Right. I don't know, maybe Carnatic music honed my ear in a certain way where I could even like start to appreciate the intricacies of like R&B music differently, you know? On the other hand, Shiv had more trouble translating his connection to Carnatic music where he lived in Lawrence, Kansas. I remember I've always had this disappointment of not being able to share the music in the way that I wanted to with friends. I would, and I'm also a sharer by temperament. And so I would share it. I would like sing like in school, like in various events. And it was like ridiculous. Like once like we, I was playing tennis and like everyone was like playing like pump up music and they, we got to like yeah. rotate. I like brought like... So Sumhendra Madhyamam is a type of scale in Carnatic music called a raga, and alapane is a slow, methodical development of that scale through long, sustained tones. Not exactly what you would expect in a pre-match playlist alongside rock and heavy metal. For tennis, it's like a vibe killer. I, w I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't like recommend listening to like alafane if you're trying to like pump up for exercise i could understand shiv's frustration he and i didn't have large social structures built around carnatic music like rupa did we couldn't openly share that part of ourselves with as many people that understood the context and the meaning behind it the plus is that i got to explore my relationship to the music i think without like all of the the pressures that come with having to play authenticity you know when you're when you're like not there are not many people in your town making remarks that make you question am i indian enough this was not really a question that like burdened me in kansas and the strangest part this competition for authenticity is as pronounced in diaspora as it is in india itself if not more so at least that's what Shruti found when she started talking with Carnatic musicians her age in Chennai, India. That's when I realized like, oh, like my idea of what Carnatic music is has been so narrow, mostly like uh, influenced by people of my parents' generation and what, what narrow conception they had of what this sure, music sure. is. And actually right. young people um, in India think about it much more imaginatively and with much more freedom i mean that's what my experience was was and i felt that that was because they don't have this like anxiety about authenticity because it's a given whereas for us you know you had this lingering concern are we maintaining maintaining the tradition preserving the tradition
That was Shivram Viswanathan. There's more to his story too, so be sure to check it out on our website. Next up, we have Raoul Rothblatt, who brings us the story about the fight to memorialize the early days of activism in Brooklyn, specifically the work of Brooklyn's Black women activists. Imagine if all the protests from the last year were erased from the history books. No Black Lives Matter protests. And then go back a little further, Ocasio-Cortez, all of those people gone from the history books. And then go back further, the decade before that, and the decade before that. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, all erased from the history books. All the civil rights marches gone. That would be kind of upsetting, right? Um, my point of doing this right now, speaking these words, is we've kind of done that for the century before that, 19th century. All of those protests, all the organizations that they founded, we have nothing that we do to recognize those people. This is the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage, at least as far as the 19th Amendment goes. The first black women's suffrage club was here in Brooklyn. Why don't we have a monument to that? So the people who did that, Dr. Uh, Susan Smith McKinney and Sarah Smith Garnett, they did a lot of other amazing things as well. Dr. Susan Smith McKinney was the first black woman doctor in New York. Sarah Smith Garnett was the first black woman principal. She taught for 37 years, 37 years of students. I mean, that is amazing, but there's nothing to recognize that. And we can do better. So this podcast is about our attempt to build a monument to the women who did something amazing. Why, hello. My name is Shanae Joy Lee. And I'm the daughter of Joy Maria Monroe Lee Jones Cofega Chatel. Joy Monroe, aka Mama Joy, was an amazing woman, and I have the pleasure to be good friends with her daughter and the rest of her family, Shanae, who's speaking here, who tell about when Mayor Bloomberg tried to confiscate their home, 227 Duffield, as it was known, to make an underground parking lot in micro park so we want to build this this statue what's there now what was the what's what could be there what should the neighborhood be i think it should be that whole area should be a hub of not only abolitionist history but of the african experience and the african diaspora because there's a lot of cultural richness there that we as a people don't even know about. It needs to be brought to our attention that Ida B. Wells lived a, only a couple of uh, blocks away from my mom's home, yeah. you know, um, and that it was, I mean, you know the history. It was just the the site of a lot of black churches, which was people's refuge and salvation. You know, I don't mind change, but I, I, I do mind when you exclude and um, demolish the character of a community mm -hmm. and totally leave no trace of what was there and what generations need to know. Mm -hmm. There's no character there. There's only coldness. And we have plenty of dog parks. Yeah. We, we don't need another one. We need something where you stop and 
not just say the person's name, but have a sense of what they looked like, what their plight was, what their mission was, what their dream was, and what their accomplishments were. And it needs, we need something tangible. We need something of substance where when we walk through, we can stop and relax and also gaze upon um, people who look like us, who accomplish great things. And we have an exciting update, actually. Just yesterday, the Landmarks Preservation Committee designated 227 Duffield Street as a landmark. That's the home of Shanae Lee, who you just heard, and the former home of the Truesdells, who are active abolitionists. That was Raoul Rothblatt. You can hear the rest of his story on our website. And finally, our last story on the episode comes to us from Yejin Lee. She reminded us just how many Brooklynites are paving their own paths right now when traditional jobs and New York City lifestyles just don't fit. Yejin interviewed Frances Perez Rodriguez, a black Puerto Rican land and farm worker living here in Brooklyn. Like, I I started to feel silly sitting at the computer tweeting. Like, I was just like, this isn't even real. Like, I'm on the internet. I'm I'm sending tweets. I'm putting a post in this, like, virtual reality. And there's, like, real shit going on. This marked the pointed departure from Francis's plans to work in music or journalism and the beginning of a journey to find meaningful focus and purpose. Books like Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower and Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States had her thinking about something new, about the power of growing food. They're just thinking of the main character in Parable of the Sower and how she's, you know, she has dried fruit and seeds and things and how that was priority and just feeling like, yeah, I need to learn how to dry fruit too. I need to learn how to plant seeds too. And I I didn't want to just do the herbal medicine. I wanted to also grow the food and, and just get us reconnected to the land So Frances decided to leave her social media job in pursuit of something related to the land and enrolled in farm school NYC. They talked about having a foundation in social justice. So because around this time I'm learning about the police, I'm learning about America, learning about racism and oppression, I was like, oh, this is dope. This is going to be not only farming, but it's going to be like the right way to farm. It's going to be like farming, you know, intentionally farming with black and brown folks. Frances graduated from farm school two years ago and has been living a life that looks and feels considerably different from the one she had set out for herself as a young person and young professional. Frances now spends her time doing farm work, land work, and has rediscovered her roots as an educator. She serves as the land education coordinator at Woke Foods, an Afro-Caribbean plant-based food service co-op that serves organizers in the South Bronx and Washington Heights. She's also an active member of La Finca del Sur Community Farm, where she grows produce and herbs. When asked what she loves most about what she does now, here's what she had to say. I really love working with uh, teenagers and young adults on the farm, on land, period. I always think of kids putting plants in the ground or kids planting seeds and then feeling ownership over the plant and being worried about the plant and thinking about the plant. Um, Those things bring me so much joy. There's nothing like seeing the sparkle in the youth's eyes um, when they're suddenly excited about being at the farm. Frances found what she was looking for. You can hear it from the sparkle in her voice. But that doesn't mean she doesn't sometimes think about what could have been if she stuck with music journalism. 
like sometimes I'm still sad about not being a music journalist. Like I see, I, especially now I'm like, oh man, I could have just done my own thing. <laughs> like that's crazy. Instead of feeling like I needed to be a part of something, like I could have just, yeah, done my own thing. There's a lot of really cool, like long form music journalism out there. Um, but I don't know that I would have woken up in this way for lack of a better term or, or learned about um, injustice and, and oppression had I stayed in that field. Maybe, maybe I would have, still seen the Central Park Five documentary, still read the same books, but I'm grateful to be doing this work. I believe that Frances's openness was part of what led her to finding focus, meaning, and purpose. She was open to listening to her experiences of loneliness as an intern, to her disillusionment with the individualistic and unhealthy culture that capitalism fosters in big industries, and to experiences of herbal healing. She was open to being changed by Octavia Butler. I do enjoy uh, a good Octavia Butler book. I've just got to reread Parable of the Sower, so that's really exciting. And Yejin is planning to turn the story into a series of interviews with BIPOC folks who have decided to form their own career paths outside of traditional jobs. So definitely watch out for her work. And you can listen to the rest of these incredible stories on our website, bklynlibrary.org slash community dash content or search for Hear Me Out on SoundCloud. Hear Me Out was part of Brooklyn Incubator, and it was co-produced by Virginia Marshall and Union Docs, and was generously supported with funding from the Charles H. Revson Foundation and Robert K. and J. L. Lewis Family Incorporated. The incredible lead instructor and curriculum designer of the library's Hear Me Out program was Stephanie Fu. Guest instructors included Dan Rosado, Marissa Schneiderman, Sasha Mathias, Anne Hepperman, and Brendan Baker. Borrowed is brought to you by Brooklyn Public Library and is hosted by me, Krissa Corbett-Kavoris, and Adjua Aduse. You can find a transcript of this episode at our website, bklynlibrary.org slash podcasts. Borrowed is produced by Virginia Marshall and written by Virginia Marshall and me with help from Fritzi Bodenheimer, Jennifer Prophet, Meryl Friedman, and Robin Lester Kenton. Our music composer is Billy Libby. Borrowed will be back next week with more of your Brooklyn stories.